community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. And in case you all missed part of that, that was Mr. William Hosea. Good evening. Yes, it was. I don't think we got the first part of that. But I'm Jim Sims, and to William's point, we just learned that Bring It On is once again a recipient of one of the Society of Professional Journalists Best in Indiana Awards. Our broadcast was entitled A Conversation on Positive Community Interactions with Indiana State Police which has been recognized under the radio public affairs category. Congratulations to the entire Bring It On team, but I think specifically that was Ms. Amrita Myers and Mr. Cornelius Wright, Mr. William Hosea. I do apologize. Corn- I do apologize. Cornelius appreciates it, though. Well, yeah, All the way I'm out sure. in California. Well, thanks, Jim, and also in today's broadcast, we will hear from Johanna Hayes, the 2016 National Teacher of the Year, all in the next hour on Bring It On. But first, in an early broadcast, we learned that the mission of the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus, or IBLC, is to strive to improve educational efforts to close the achievement gap that threatens to shut the doors to opportunity for minority students at all grade levels. They also seek to enhance public policies that will address the primary concerns of minority citizens in Indiana, including the need to reduce crime, gun violence, and domestic violence within our communities, and to target assistance to address the needs of families struggling to obtain basic necessities such as housing, utilities, clothing, and food. And as an ongoing benefit to our listeners, we have arranged to receive monthly progress reports from the IBLC towards attaining their legislative agenda. So joining us by phone tonight is Indiana State Senator and Attorney Greg Taylor, who represents District 33. In November of 2008, Senator Taylor joined the Senate with a breadth of knowledge and experience regarding economic development and job creation. Senator Taylor, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Thank you for joining us. Seriously. All right. Um, As you may have heard, uh, we have co-hosts here, William Hosea, and I am Jim Sims. And the first thing I want to say is that on, I believe it was February 28th, the um, NAACP's Legislative Day at the State House, um, and we were in mass, but you guys were in session, so I do apologize for missing you that day. Yes, we were in session, and we always want to recognize the the presence of the NAACP here at the state house, but unfortunately, that day we were we were in session. <laughs> um, as called by the uh, you know the president pro tem of the Senate. So, Senator Taylor, I was uh, reading your weekend review. Uh, I think that's published on your uh, posted on your Facebook page. Is that correct? Yes. So I, I want to get straight to uh, the point on some of the items that you mentioned uh, on your Facebook uh, post, like the gas tax hike, six hundred and seventy-two uh, yeah. million for transportation infrastructure within the state of Indiana. So my question is, if the president is proposing a one trillion dollar infrastructure bill, would it still be necessary for Indiana to go forward with the state bill as it's currently written? Because when, when you look at some of the uh, 
some of the increases in that bill, like five dollars on on each new tire, uh, one hundred dollars for commercial license plates, seventy-five dollars for hybrid vehicles, and a few other items also. So, would it be necessary for the state to continue on if they get that money from the federal government? I think it would, because what you have to understand from the state's perspective, even if we were to get those one-time dollars from the federal government to make improvements to our roads, there's ongoing maintenance and other items that we have to take care of as well. So it's not about just building the roads, it's also maintaining them. So we have to come up with a, if you will, long-term source of funding to make sure that we have our roads in good shape. Okay, so Senator Taylor, do you support this legislation? Um, But I guess your opposition is how it may affect the local infrastructure needs. Is that fair in saying? Yeah, um, I I don't support, I I do not support the current proposition that we tax um, individuals that don't have and continue to lower the tax on individuals that do have. And what I mean by that is, right now we are in the midst of a corporate tax reduction. Right. Just just from last year numbers alone, that would have saved us. We would have, if we would have, to not increase, but to just delay that tax reduction, it would generate almost $80 million. That in itself would eliminate the tire tax um, if we were to do that. But instead, what we're doing is we're passing on, um, instead of having the corporations pay, we're passing all these fees and all and things like that on to, uh, if you will, Joe the plumber, the regular <laughs> plumber. Right. I was uh, thinking more along uh, Antoine the carpenter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whoever you want to call it. The bottom line is the corporations are going to continue to see a reduction in their tax bill. And to me, that would be, uh, that's, that's not fair. Uh, it's not something that we do. We should uh, continue, all, if we want to continue the reduction to the corporations, we shouldn't do it on the backs of the ordinary citizens, ordinary Hoosiers. I totally, totally agree, and I think we all agree that our roads and our infrastructure definitely need some help. Um, Senator Taylor, I was also wondering how this um, proposal might affect public transportation costs. Um, I mean, we, we've got a lot of law enforcement um, vehicles out there, and um, they may or may not be state, but um, that funding is part of that, and buses and rural transits and that sort of thing. So how would it affect those sorts of agencies? Or will it at all? Well, this is what I think. I think that the road funding can affect every general fund category. Let me tell you why. Because the sources that we are, the sources of revenue that we are contemplating, the fees, could go for other services, and they're not. And at the same time, while we're, again, while we are taxing the regular Hoosier and giving tax break to corporations, we're saying to, to local communities, tighten up your, your uh, checkbook, and we're not going to give you any money for your local 
if you will, transit. So your bus systems, your police cars, community municipalities are going to still struggle with the basic necessities they need to operate public safety. So have has there been any types of uh, studies done about how this uh, this would affect the African American community in, in certain areas that are already, you know, struggling and economically depressed? I don't think so at this time. But if you can imagine, if you go to the gas station and you pay another eighteen cents a gallon, and remember, eighteen cents a gallon means for those people who. Looked at I, I just bought a ticket gas the other day, and it was two thirty nine a gallon. I thought that was a pretty decent price. But add another eighteen cents on top of that, and that's what the price would be if we were under this tax. That's going to hurt the everyday Hoosier more than it is the corporation. And remember, it's a regressive tax. So because it's it, it's not based on your income. It's going to hit the poor more than it hits the wealth. And it also, the amount that we receive over time due to more efficiency, what we see with cars and things like that, it's going to, the, the, the amount that we receive over time is going to be less. All right, and I thought it was weird that we were taxing like hybrid vehicles, which were kind of designed to help lessen um, gas and, and petroleum and fossil fuels and that sort of thing. Um, but I, and I guess kind of what he was getting at, and, and this is what we say, that when tough economic times come in the general population, then the African-American comp, well, <laughs> uh, community, America when they catch a cold, cold we, we get, get pneumonia. Um, yeah. And yeah. we were wondering how would that disp- or potentially disproportionately affect, you know, people of color in those communities. Well, this is what... Yes, it, it, it's definitely going to disproportionately affect the people of color in our community. And, and let's remember, these transit systems that we are talking about, those jobs that are going to be created associated with these, these road renovations, do you think that the, the minority community is going to be the community to get those jobs? I mean, we saw from uh, major moves and what happened in northwest Indiana. When you're smack dab in the middle of Gary, you still did not have minorities working on those road crews. Right. right. And uh, my fear is that we won't have it again. Not only that, but remember, for, and I keep saying this, it's like the Donald Trump, uh, if you will, tax break. If one person gets a tax break and you have a balanced budget, guess what that means? That means somebody else correspondingly has to take a cut. Right. <laughs> Well, who you know, do you think they're going to cut certain cuts? Who's going to take the cut? <laughs> you know, all all this talk about money is just reminding me that I don't have any in my wallet. So, so we're going to shift gears a little bit here. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you about your uh, bias motivated crimes bill, HB four thirty nine. And I wanted you to ask this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so go ahead. Go right ahead. But let me just say this. I was talking to a legislator the other day, and this guy is a young guy, he's probably 35 years old. We'll go nameless right now because I think he deserves a chance to learn. Uh, and he told me, he said, it's no, you are just as likely as I am. And he was, we were talking about the difference between being a white man and a black man in America. And he said, 
that he's just as likely to be harmed out in the streets as I am by public safety officials or anybody else. And then he went on to say that there are no remnants of slavery that we deal with in society today. So let's start with the basics right there. There are people who believe that, okay? So getting to them and helping them understand that biased crimes can help everybody is a difficult task. Um, believe it or not, biased crimes helps people of color just as much as it does the people who have a, a lighter hue. And they don't believe that here in Indiana. Mm. Can you give us an example of a biased crime? Okay. Well, it happened right in your backyard, down in Bloomington. A young man walks into a McDonald's, chokes a young lady, and says, white power while he's doing it. In the meantime, her daughter is sitting there watching this, and he's screaming white power while he's choking her. He may be intoxicated, but he's saying the words, and he's saying these words because she's Muslim. Now, basically, he sought her out because of her, her either religious beliefs or her skin color. It doesn't matter. Religion or race are the same category. So what would happen is, if a judge were looking at sentencing him, and let's say that crime, strangulation, carries a term of anywhere from one to three years in jail, the judge would use the fact that he saw her out as a person who is a Muslim or someone of color, and he could aggravate the sentence up to the maximum of three years. So instead of giving the kid one year, he would give him three in the sentencing part of it. It does not go to whether or not the person is guilty of the underlying crime, which is strangulation. That is proven in itself. So all the prosecutor would have to do is prove that the person strangled somebody and prove that it was based on some of their unenable rights, right to religion, their race, their gender, etc. And then the judge could sentence them up to three years. So it's an aggravator. That's all it is. It's not a new crime. It says, we want you to give this person up to the maximum to send a message to the rest of the people that we will not tolerate people being sought after based on these facts. That's what a biased crime is, and that's what we were trying to get past in Indiana. Okay, and that's, and that's pretty clear. Would that be a, uh, an amendment somehow to the current hate crime legislation? The same thing. Okay, that was what that was my question. I had a state hate crime with a question mark, um, and I understand that the motion to amend was defeated, um, as usual. It seems along party lines. Um, so, is this something that you would hope to um, discuss again or, or resurrect in the future? Because it sounds very, very important, um, you know, for our community. This year, this is the sixth time I've tried to get this bill passed. Wow. I will bring this bill back every year. We are one of five states in the entire country that don't have a biased crime law. Wow. I, I, don't, I don't want you to think about is this. This young man choked a woman, walked in. She was not bothering him. She did not inhibit his progress or anything. He choked her in front of her nine-year-old daughter, and he got one-year probation. Yeah, we're... we're we live here, and that was a, a shocker, too, I might add. So what is, now, now, this is what the people asked me. This is what one of the legislators asked me. He said, well, 
Greg, aren't you more concerned about that he strangled somebody or the reason why he strangled her? And I said, I'm worried about the reason why he strangled her because if you are a Muslim woman in Bloomington, Indiana, the message is this. Somebody can go up to you, strangle you in public, and the maximum penalty that they're going to get is one year. And you know what? Wouldn't that make you scared to go outside? Yeah. Yeah, and and it it kind of sends a message that if uh, if she, if she were not a Muslim woman woman standing there, he probably would not have committed a crime that night. There you go. And think about well, this is what I always say to people. Think about this. Do you believe if if you don't believe the basics that there was a time in this country where people who were being attacked based on who they were put this country in a position where we could have had revolution. I mean, it comes back over and over again. And I keep telling people, if you don't believe that we're at that time in this country right now, just just watch. I mean, you're not going to listen. And as I told my colleague, when people get fed up, they ain't going to come in here looking for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> you're not going to come looking for me. When one of these Muslims who have been attacked come in here shooting because they feel like that they don't have a right to be who they are and express their religious beliefs in a country whose foundation was built on expressing your fundamental rights, they're not going to be shooting at me. As a matter of fact, they might say, hey, man, when you move out the way, I'm trying to get him. Mm. I'm trying to tell you that we are on the brink of something like that today because of what we are doing here in the state of Indiana. We're sending a terrible message that if, you know, we've had Muslims attacked in in, uh, in, in West Lafayette, we've had churches, synagogues in the Jewish community with bomb threats. I mean, can you imagine giving a bomb threat to a daycare? Well, Senator, I hope you keep reintroducing that bill up until you run for governor and then pass it on to somebody else. <laughs> that would be an executive order if I ran for governor. It wouldn't even... I wouldn't even send it to the legislature. And, and obviously, uh, you have to consider the, the, the social construct and changing the mind of the majority population, right. I think, to see things the way um, other people see it, which is a, a, a job in and of itself, I might add. Yes. All right. Now, if you don't mind, um, let, let's talk about this Monroe, I'm sorry, Marion County Judicial Selection. Um House Bill 1036, I believe. Um, and us, of course, with the NAACP, we talk about this a lot, and a couple other um, um, organizations I belong to. But it, I don't know how to put it, and I'm on the air, but this has got to be about the most asinine approach in dealing with elected officials and the rights of the people in which that they, let's just say it, judge upon. Um, what is your position on this? And I think we know, but we'd like to hear it from you. Well, I'm not going to get into the uh, the actual minutia of the bill, but let me let me say this: if the bill were to pass today in the form it is currently in, there will be five counties in the state of Indiana that will elect their judges through some process that does not allow the public to have a partisan election. And what I mean by that is, that means the people who we have always known 
determined to be the people who we who hold us accountable as elected officials. If we don't act right in our position, we know that the voters can vote us out of office. These systems, which we are calling merit today, create a situation where the governor ultimately chooses, or some committee ultimately chooses, who is sitting on the bench. Now, there is no accountability to the community because the community does not elect the judge. The judge is elected and or appointed through a what is called is what is called a merit system, which means there is a committee of people who are appointed by certain designations, by certain designees, as their members on this commission, and then they are appointed. And then to get rid of the judge, you have to do what is called a retention vote which says the judge is not fit to sit on the bench. Now, in the history of the state of Indiana retention vote, that has been done one time, actually twice. And that is the, that, that's the problem. Now, to add insult to injury, or here might be the most offensive part, four of those five counties are the counties of highest minority population in the state of Indiana. That was my next question. (laughs) (laughs) You knew it was coming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so here it is. You've got Lake County, Marion County, St. Joseph County, Allen County, and Vandenberg County. All have some system other than direct election of judges for their judges. Now, what that has created in counties like St. Joe County is you have a county that is represented 24% minority population. You have zero judges of color. Communities like uh, Allen County, where you have a 27% minority population, you have zero judges of color. Communities like Vandenberg County that have almost a 17% minority population, has zero judges of color. Now, I don't know how you feel about that, but to me... Yes, you do. Yes, you do. (laughs) But to me, even if you didn't do that on purpose, the fact that it exists would make you want to do something about it. So if that bill is passed, is it headed for a court challenge? Absolutely. And here's the challenge. In any lawyer in their right mind would do this, but 1965 Voting Rights Act was passed to allow minorities and women to vote, and then in, I believe it was 1982, there was a Supreme Court case that came down and said, no longer do you have to prove that there was a desperate purpose behind the legislation. In other words, no longer do you have to prove that they actually wanted to discriminate. If the effect of your legislation or ordinance is to effectively dilute and or eliminate people of color being able to vote, you are in violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So I think we have a base. I mean, the bottom line is if you can prove just by, and I'm pretty sure you can do that just by looking at the 2010 census, that those counties that have minority, highest minority population 
have something other than um, elections for their judges, I think it's a simple argument. And it, and it, what it does is it puts our entire marriage system under jeopardy for being uh, being uh, considered unconstitutional by the Seventh Circuit. And if that happens, wow. We, got, we don't just have to change Marion County. We got to change St. Joe, Lake. So I'm trying to be, if you will, the uh, person of reason and saying, look, we already know the way it exists. Why don't we do something about it now so we don't have to go to court and spend taxpayer dollars? Okay, and if I could cut in here just for the benefit of our listeners, we are speaking this evening with Indiana State Senator and Attorney Greg Taylor, who represents District Number 33, um, um, living in Indianapolis. Um, and we're talking about some of the current legislation and, and particularly some of the bills that um, not only does Senator Taylor find important, um, but so do we and, and members of our community. Um, I think we still have some time left. Can we move on toward, uh, boy, there's so many things to talk about, but how about this state school superintendent yeah, yeah. issue? What, what was the IBLC's uh, position on that bill? Well, again, here we go again, taking away <laughs> the citizens' right to vote. But I want to tell you guys that something even more interesting about that vote. You do understand that in the Senate, when that bill first came to the Senate floor, it was defeated by the Senate. Correct. That bill was defeated 26 to 23. Now, if you, for those of you who do math, we only have nine members of the Democrat caucus. So that means there had to be at least 17 of their members who voted against that bill initially. So what happened was, and this is what people, I think, uh, should be more upset about is that bill came back. We have this rule called decisively defeated in the Senate. In the uh, Senate, it says if language is decisively defeated, it cannot come back during that session. In a, substantially similar or the same language cannot come back. So what they did is they changed the language, changed the date in which it would go into effect, and changed what the qualifications were for the superintendent and brought the bill back and it passed. 28 to 20 or something like that. Wow. So it was brought back to the committee that defeated it in the first place. Yeah, and ironically, three members changed their vote. I, I thought that, well, illegal is not the right word, I think. Yeah. Um, oh, but, uh, but not allowed. <laughs> So, so once again, what is the impact on areas with a high concentration of minorities? You don't get to vote. You vote the governor chooses your superintendent of public instruction. So the governor dictates education policy in the state of Indiana. The governor chooses what test that we take for our kids and learning what standardized test we take. This is this is one of the most. I, I think one of the most offensive things to the taxpayers of the state of Indiana, but at the same time, while we voted in this state to get rid of a guy who we thought was moving this state in a bad direction uh, educationally, we elected the same governor that he was elected with on the same ticket, and that's called accountability. 
We just took the accountability for education policy out of the hands of the people and put it in the hands of the government. Educational and judicial gerrymandering. Mm. And along those lines, obviously, um, it's different. But the conversation that we're still having um, largely goes about vouchers and the voucher system and how that's been implemented and um, in particularly some of the, the negative effects it's having on our public school systems. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about that. The voucher system, as you all well, all well know, goes predominantly over 60% goes to parochial schools. Now, my children went to a parochial school, so I'm not a critic criticizer of parochial school, and I'm not here to criticize this. But what I am here to say is, if our founding fathers knew that government money was going to religious institutions, they would turn over in their grave. Right. Now, let's let's understand, right now it's parochial institutions. Who's to say that we may not be paying for a Burmese school, a Muslim school? I mean, I, I'm telling you, this is going to be, this is not the end. And vouchers, by the way, have grown almost 400% since its implementation. Wow. And, and what does that spell in the future? And I know it's hard to have that crystal ball, but to our public schools. Um, some communities, and here in Monroe County, we were fortunate enough to um, select a, a referendum or vote in a referendum. But I know other counties throughout the state that, for whatever reasons, did not approve such a thing. And, and right. it seems to be pretty devastating. Um, but without the state support and that revenue stream, I don't see good things for the public school system if we're headed that direction. Um, would you Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Let me say this too. This is the effect of public schools being, in my opinion, uh, mismanaged and underfunded. We are going to. And I'm predicting this right now. In two years. We will be back in front of the legislature two to three years. Let me say that we will back back in front be back in front of the new legislature asking to build another prison. Yeah. And 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 that is the that is the part that nobody's talking about. A lack of education we all know leads to crime, mental instability, and incarceration. Wow. You know, we oh. could. We, I, I hate to cut you off, but we're about out of time, and we could talk about this forever. Did I um, understand at the beginning that we have a set monthly? Yeah, once a month okay. uh, with the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus. Boy, you know, it, it, I sure hope I'm here to co-host the next one. Um, but our thanks to Indiana State Senator Greg Taylor, who joined us to discuss progress on the legislative agenda of the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus. Um, before I finish that up, Senator Taylor, we want to say thank you very much, and um, you have a great evening, my brother. Yeah, you guys stay safe in Bloomington. We're doing a little rain up here. I don't know. You yeah. rain up here usually means winds down there. So uh, <laughs> That is true. <laughs> and uh, I appreciate all the time, and uh, thank you for having me on the show. Well, You're welcome. You. We hope Being to talk touch. again soon. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. To learn more about the IBLC or the 
Indiana Black Legislative Caucus, go to indianahousedemocrats.org backslash members backslash IBLC. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. You can send your emails directly to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. Our email address once again, bring it on at wfhb.org. Support for WFHB comes from Juanita's Restaurant. Located at 620 West Kirkwood, Juanita's Restaurant is a family-owned and operated business that brings Mexican cuisine to Bloomington, Indiana. Catering service is also available. More at 812-339-2340 or online at Juanitas.com. Summertime in Virginia was an oven. All the kids eating ice cream with their cousins. I was studying while you was playing the dozens. Don't act like you was there when you wasn't. Running from the man. Sometimes my mind does. Deep. When I'm running, 
heard running by singer songwriter rapper record producer and film producer Farrell Williams this song is from the soundtrack to the 2017 best picture nominated movie hidden figures oh is that where it came from yes well to keep up with uh, local news and find out what's happening beside this behind the scenes at WFHB you are invited to like our WFHB Facebook page Go to Facebook.com and search for WFHB. Or you can always visit the WFHB News website at, what else? WFHB.org slash news. Bring It On is America's only public affairs program dedicated to the African American community. Here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. All right, there's the music bed. And um, we are going to do a little, not not quite a U-turn, um, but we're going to continue discussing with our leaders out here, our listeners, I apologize. Um, one thing we'd like to bring to your attention, in West Baden, Indiana, there is a African-American church, a Baptist church that is on the his- National Historic Registry um, as much renovation Um, that was taking place down there and remodeling and rebuilding. This church was left um, and it has not been touched at all. So locally, Second Baptist Church and the Southeastern District Conference have gotten together to try to resurrect this hotel and they have a, I'm sorry, this church, and they have a renewal project and we need you all's help. From April the 12th at noon until May the 12th at noon, We're asking everyone to vote once a day, every day. And you do this online and you go to ACT, that's ACT, ACT ACT.USAToday.com. When you get there, look for the West Baden Church Renewal Project and vote. Now do this once a day, every day, and it'll help us raise funds in order to bring back this this church there's a congregation waiting them there are people down there that need to just hear um the good news so in fact uh liz mitchell who's been working uh on that she's going to be on the show next week along with pastor bruce rose yes. and they're going to tell us all about it they're going to talk about how i got started um uh what kind of progress they've made and uh and and the work that they've done so far and you know the interesting thing that i learned over the weekend is this was started out as a black church right it is but the congregation that's going to move into the church when it's completed is going to be non-black well i I think it'll be multicultural um you think so I, i think so um there are still a lot of current um 
service providers. Um, um, yeah. That that industry, tourism industry employees, um, that I think will take use of those services. Um, it probably won't be like what we're used to yeah. um, with that setup membership, but um, um, I just do know there needs to be a place down there for people to just regroup and we re-energize. And you know, and no uh, matter what it ends up being, uh, no matter what the congregation is, it does not change the historical significance exactly. of the church. In fact, the current so, name is the First Baptist Colored Church of West Baden. So I say go for it, Liz. Yes, again, at dot usa today dot com find the west baden church renewal project and click vote 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 um william i think we still have a few more minutes um that was such an engaging conversation with, with senator minutes. greg taylor um are there any other things that you kind of wanted to just touch base on um there was a lot of things we wanted to talk about. With, well, uh, for, in, in general, I mean, we've got a few okay. minutes to, you know, well, talk with our listeners. And we've got some voting right issues. Um, he mentioned some of the Voting Rights Act as, as kind of a basis on how they're wanting to overturn some of the state legislature, uh, in particularly with the election of the judges. Um, I'm thinking more along the, and you mentioned it, gerrymandering, um, changing districts to fit. Uh, the power of the, the party that's currently in power you know things like that um, we've got criminal justice issues there's some health issues um, specifically whatever they decide or make a federal decision with regard to repealing or replacing Obamacare as they call it or the, the Affordable Care Care Act obviously that's going to touch on Medicare and some of those provisions and I'm just wondering how that may affect some of the state medical programs like HIP um, and those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, there's labor. Do we work on a state minimum wage or Bloomington has a living wage approach or living wage ordinance? Is that more appropriate? Um, there's economic justice. Um, and, and there's so many things that's on the federal level that could affect us. Um, it's going to trickle down. It's going to trickle down. Levels. And I'm quite sure that... Um, your boy, if I could say that, Carson, <laughs> Carson over HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Well, you know, it's um, interesting so you should mention that because uh -huh. I also sit on the uh, Board of Commissioners for the Housing Authority. Yes, at the moment. Uh, yes, now, yes. One thing that we have had our eye on is we know that these cuts to HUD are coming. And so what that's going to do is impact the ability of the city of Bloomington and other other housing authorities to provide that public housing and in the past when HUD underwent drastic cuts some of the housing authorities just had to shut down completely right especially in the rural areas and people who voted this guy in and the people that he put in charge don't that they, they don't see that <laughs> right they just there's this huge disconnect they just cannot relate but can you imagine all of these people who legitimately need public housing and Section 8? If the cuts are bad enough, people will be turned out. The homeless pop population will zoom. So anyway, we are trying to, you know, prepare a contingency plan to cope right. with that. If I, th I think it's more a matter of when than if. Yeah, and I think additionally, um, there were a couple of agencies that the um, Trump administration talked about cutting totally um, I think for the most part that conversation yeah. the total cut is off the table but 
I think there will be deep cuts. Um, as um, Senator Taylor said, if you make cuts somewhere, then you have to add somewhere else. And if you add somewhere else, you're going to have to cut somewhere else. Right. So it'll be interesting to see, in particularly, and you can't argue funding for military, you know, that sort of thing, armed forces. Uh, there's other things you can't argue. Um, but where's the... The, the fair line there and you know, you know you asked senator taylor a question about uh education where will public uh education be in the future with regard to public right now i think that the the unspoken 800 pound gorilla in the room is the the far-right republican agenda really wants to do away with public education get rid of it all together hmm. that, that's what i think because think about it if you start pouring money into charter schools and taking away from public education, what else can public schools do but die? That, that's if that's my, a trend and they keep going with it, what else can they do? That's my fear, so I'm not so... Okay. Well, okay. at the top of the hour, we mentioned that we invited uh, Johanna Hayes the 2016 National Teacher of the Year to speak with us. Okay, and Mrs. Hayes, who is a history teacher and the chairperson of the School of Academic Renown, or SOAR acronym, program at Kennedy High School in the West Waterbury Public School District. She began her teaching career in the New Haven Public Schools. Okay, Mrs. Hayes' career as an educator goes back 13 years with the most recent 11 years in Waterbury. Um, we have a little bit more bio. We're just going to cut so we can have a few minutes to, to speak with Ms. Hayes. Um, Ms. Hayes, are you there? Yes. How are you? Wonderful, thank you. Okay, our co-host here, uh, I am Jim Sims, and this handsome fellow to my right is William Hosea. <laughs> and... Um, Sorry, we had a few te technical difficulties, so we have, I don't know, five minutes or okay. so to discuss with you. Um, so, first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It's been an amazing year. Now, what brought you to Indiana? Well, I this will be my second trip to Indiana, actually. I was at the Bloomington campus a few months back for one of their new teacher programs, and... Mm -hmm. They must have liked me because they've invited me to come and speak to another group of teachers. <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, obviously, um, you get to come and go, and, and we appreciate the positive vibes that um, happens when you come. And we live here with the results. Um, I guess what I'm wondering is, did you get an audience with administration with um, our local school system, the M Monroe County Community School Corporation, or was this mostly through the School of Education program? It was mostly through the School of Education program. There were some pre-service teachers and some new teachers, but most of the administrative personnel were campus people. Okay. Um, so Ms. Hayes, I'm curious, how, how long have you been teaching? This is my 14th year teaching. 14th year. And uh, can you tell us about the students that, that you have? <laughs> <laughs> That's well, a good one. I huh? teach in the same city where I grew up where I was educated myself. Okay. It's a large urban district, the fourth largest in the state of Connecticut. And I'll tell you how my students said it. 
when I was named the National Teacher of the Year, several articles came out about me, and they kept referring to my district and my school as a Title I school district, and my students asked me, and I'm trying to explain them to them the educational terminology for Title I, and they said to me, so a fancy way to say we're poor. <laughs> so <laughs> so if, if you had to describe it from education terms, it's a Title I identified as underperforming, mostly poverty school district. We have, um, I think, about 43 languages represented in our school, wow. majority minority district. But I love it. It's where I'm from. It's who I am. 43 languages. You know, kids have a way of just cutting to the chase, don't they? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just so fancy. Like, I'm trying to explain it to them in the most academic terms that I knew how. <laughs> And they said, so a fancy way to say we're poor. And I was like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> and I just bet all the folks at, and, and uh, we're just going to take a stab at this, at Southern Connecticut State University, um, the University of St. Joseph, and an advanced degree from the University of Bridgeport. I bet they are all just proud, very proud. Oh, yes, absolutely. Those are all, all my education was here in the state of Connecticut. So those are all Connecticut institutions, very local and very excited. You know, we have a lot of <laughs> uh, changes going on with our education, educator preparation programs, our teacher evaluation programs. So we have all these things going on. So they were very excited. Okay, and I think you have some working knowledge of our system and how we evaluate our teachers, or at least at state level, and maybe not intimately. Um, but how does that compare to, say, the public school district that you're involved with or or the state for that matter well we just had a challenge that faced our state board of education with how do we evaluate teachers and there was a lot of conversation around using standardized test scores to evaluate teachers and I think that people outside of education when they hear that teachers are against that they think that you know teachers don't want the accountability measures and they don't want to have to answer to test scores but for someone like me who works in a school like like the one I do, standardized test scores don't really take into account everything else that happens, all those variables, all those intangibles. You know, students are learning, and there has to be a different way to measure or at least a more complex way. You know, it's not as simplistic as saying, you know, who has the highest test scores, you know, because here in Connecticut, we have some of the highest performing districts and some of the low, lowest performing districts. However, when you look at, you know, the family makeup, the income makeup, the community makeup, you know, all the resources that certain districts have, you know, all of those things play a very important role, and we can't just completely excuse them when we're talking about student progress. You know, earlier, and you said um, uh, one comment was a cute way of saying poor, um, and I'm going to borrow from that. And when you say variable, when we talk about standardized test scores, um, that there is variables and intangibles. Is that the same as biases and institutionalized problems and some of those other terms that we hear and that uh, many of us believe are instrumental in negatively affecting um, children of color, you know, our children and, and lower socioeconomic folks and that sort of thing? Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. You know, I don't, I don't care who's trying to make the argument. You cannot, you know eliminate the fact that you have children that have so many different 
issues coming to school, you know, and so many different things that we have to deal with, with limited resources, you know, so many different challenges. And these tests oftentimes are inherently biased, you know, even the way the tests are um, made, you know, in the development, if you look at some of the questions, you know, and there's a lot of conversation, you know, that looks very carefully at, you know, are these across-the-board standardized tests, do they level the playing field? And I happen to know that they don't. You know, I work in a district, we use standardized tests. Kids have to learn something. There has to be some measure. But I, I believe that there's other things that we can do with that information until we get the testing right. Um, do you think that diversity helps? Um, will children learn better if there's people there that resemble them, um, that they can relate to? Um, how important, and, and I know me being the, the co-host and asking questions, <laughs> I want to laugh at that myself a little bit, um, <laughs> but how important do you think diversity settings and, and you know, just, just re recruitment and that sort of thing? Oh, my God, it's so important. You know, like I said, I was educated in the same district where I teach, and while we are a majority-minority district, probably about 70% of our students are students of color. I think less than 5% of our teachers are teachers of color. And I remember myself saying, you know, I'd like to be a teacher someday, but not really seeing myself represented in this profession. You know, and not much has changed since I went through the school system. I, and, and the interesting thing is, I think kids feel it. Even though people don't say things that might be biased or racially charged, kids feel, you know, the tension. Kids feel when there is no cultural sensitivity. And there are comments that are made. There are ways that lessons are taught where sometimes I have to remind my colleagues that this may be culturally insensitive. And I just think that for young people trying to find their path, they're looking for role models. You know, they have to see it to be it. And I, I'm always very careful when I make that statement because I don't ever want it to appear that I'm saying that only a minority can teach a minority. Right. Because that is not what I'm saying, but I'm saying that kids need to be able to find themselves somewhere, you know, in this educational journey, represented in some way, so that they know in, in the lessons that are taught, in the curriculum that is offered, in the staff and the faculty that stand before them, you know, that they are a part of this process. You know, not just the receivers of the instruction. Mrs. Hayes, I'm uh, reading your bio, and as Teacher of the Year, I'm going to assume that your passion is teaching, but I just want to mention some of the other things that you were involved in, like Chairperson of the Kennedy School Governance uh, Council, NEASC Chairperson. Um, you mentor new teachers, uh, co-advisor of HOPE, helping out people everywhere. You traveled the country building homes for Habitat uh, for Humanity, and Board of Directors for the Citywide Front Porch Cleanup. Obviously, my hours, my days have 24 hours, and yours <laughs> have 27 to 28. But, oh, but I think it ties back to what we were just talking about. You know, I mm -hmm. live in a community where kids have seen themselves as the receivers for so long, and I really want to change the perception of the kids I teach. These, are, these kids are givers. You know, sometimes the less you have, the more valuable it is to give. You know, I want my students to realize that they have value and that, you know, they don't always have to wait for things to happen to them. They can be a part of the solution, and that comes in so many different ways. You know, I, I am heavily involved in my community. I want kids to, 
see themselves not as the leaders of tomorrow, but the leaders of today. And I think it's in part because I understand the perception of kids coming out of these communities, you know, and I'm really trying to change that before they leave me. Okay, and one last thing. Um, what would you say is the importance, and particularly with children of color, that um, maybe churches and, and religious institutions play a part in their education and, you know, helping this situation? Do you see any value My in goodness, that? you're like... Yes. Right. You just read me. <laughs> those are <laughs> the three that I really have just been. I believe that, you know, the challenges that we face in education, especially in public education, school systems and teachers will not solve this alone. You know, we really have to engage parents and communities as partners. You know, I... I laugh because people have this idea that there is a separation of church and state, and there is. All that means is that I cannot force children to pray. But if these families are, you know, members of local congregations, and, you know, I can partner with that congregation to help me educate children, I think that we would be remiss if we didn't take advantage of those opportunities, you know, and... The city where I live, churches are some of our largest and most thriving institutions. All right, and I hate to be the ender of this party, um, but we want to really, and hope next time you're in Bloomington that we're able to talk a little bit longer yeah. and get into this a little oh, bit more. Oh, sorry, sorry we oh, had those okay. difficulties that cut our time short, but I really enjoyed talking to you. Well, we'll look forward to the next time, and all we need is a promise that you'll do that. Oh, yes, absolutely. All right. All right, and we want to thank Mrs. Hayes, the 2016 National Teacher of the Year, for joining us to shed light upon the distinction and her approach and philosophy to teaching for WFHB. I am Jim Sims. I'm William Hosea. You are listening to Bring It On, Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. Thank you. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB News Department Director Joe Crawford. Our news editor is Michael Nolan. Our board engineering team consists of Jim Thrasher and Floyd Hobson. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. WFHB. I'm William Hosea. And I'm Jim Sims, and have a great night, y'all. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.